Welcome everyone to So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. I am your co-host, David Pastrana. And I am your co-host, Mike Reeves. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Today, we will be discussing post-operative patients and patients without protocols. So Mike, tell us a little bit about why we decided to do this topic and, and why we felt it was important. Yeah, so a lot of times our, our protocols are designed around the most common procedure that is done. And those protocols are, 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 pretty, are pretty straightforward. Uh, but a lot of times when a surgeon is doing the operation, they end up doing more things while they're in there. For example, like a bicep tenodesis along with, with a rotator cuff repair. And a lot of times you may just get sent over a rotator cuff repair protocol. Yeah, I think when we started practicing as interns in, in a large sports medicine facility, I think we were almost a little spoiled. We, we got some really detailed protocols, physicians that really laid out everything they did in surgery, great communication. And I think that's just how we thought it was everywhere. And then when we started traveling, at least when I started traveling, I know you were also in some underserved areas as well. The communication is just not as good as we would like. And at times you might even get a patient who lives in a small rural town where you're working. They might drive you know, two hours to the nearest city and then come back with an operation and getting in communication with that physician. There's some delays, sometimes weeks, and you're playing phone tag and you just may not be able to get that direct line of communication like, like we did in a very established hospital system. So I think this actually happens more common than I realized when I was a new grad. And I think it's just important for us as clinicians, because at some point, once you become an expert in your field and in physical therapy and rehabilitation, depending on the setting that you work in, you may be called upon to help construct or build rehabilitation protocols. I mean, someone has to design these. And I think, why not the, the professionals in rehabilitation and movement and loading? Yeah, could not agree more. So, Mike, how often would you say while you were doing the internal traveling and you were in, in those underserved areas and those more rural areas, did you get a patient without a protocol? Almost every single one of my patients would come without one. Uh, my front office knew that every patient that was coming in uh, postoperatively, I wanted them to call over and get me an op report and a protocol. And I think at most of the clinics that I was at, I was the first person to ever do it, which was, I think, surprising to me coming from the background that you and I were both in, where we were just used to having the protocols and, and op reports within, within our system um, initially. So when I first started traveling, that was, that was just kind of something that I had become accustomed to throughout my clinical work. So it's something that I wanted because I knew it was going to help me make uh, decisions. So almost all of them wouldn't have a protocol initially, but most of the surgeons had at least something basic. But like I kind of said earlier, a lot of times it'd be a rotator cuff repair protocol and it'd just be their standard basic rotator cuff repair pr protocol that they send for everyone, um, which is why I would also ask for that op report because that, that gives me a little bit more of an insight into what the surgeon did when he was in there. Yeah, I think those are all important things to think about in regards to just knowing what they did in the surgery and, and how what they did really influences your your rehab in regards to some of those additional things that may not be in that initial prescription as far as rotator cuff repair, but then they did, like you said, a biceps tenodesis or whatever it might be. And, and those small things don't change your rehab too much, but there are some procedures where you may not necessarily get a very specific protocol. So Mike, going into that day one evaluation of your post-op patients is going to be a really loaded, open-ended question. But I think it's important one to just think about as far as what are we telling our patients day one to set them up for success when it comes to post-operative rehabilitation? What does your education look like? I think uh, the most important thing that I like to set up day one is less is going to be more. How I say it is uh, the surgeon went in there, he fixed some stuff. We want to make sure that that heals okay and we don't overdo it. I like that. Yeah, that's a hundred percent right. And I think it's not overdoing it and not underdoing it and finding that gradual loading, gradual dosing so that can allow them to recover from the trauma of the surgery. I think we're a little bit better at load management when it comes to our post-op patients. So I think the most important thing, like you mentioned on day one education is setting up that load management paradigm that we talked about on the last episode, talking about underloading and overloading and really making sure that they're not overusing the structures that were involved in the surgery and that they're allowing those structures to heal. And at the same time, once they get out of that high irritability phase and once they're starting to transition and that tissue is really healing, right, making sure that we're loading those structures in a gradual way to help facilitate the return of their function. 
think a lot of patients think when they have a surgery, the anatomy is fixed and therefore no matter what I do, unless it's completely extreme, I can't really mess up the surgery. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, we talk about kind of that uh, ACL kind of in that, you know, six, eight ish weeks window where, where the graft is actually going to be probably at, at, at its weakest point. And then over that kind of eight to 12 weeks, it starts to kind of get revascularized. And then, and then the, the strength of the graft itself starts to get a, a little bit stronger. So it's really important in that, you know, kind of six to 12 week point to make sure that you're still adhering to those uh, precautions as far as how we progress ACL exercises. Um, but still kind of keeping that in mind that as you go through rehab, the graft is actually going to be a little bit weaker a few weeks after surgery. That's a very good point. So we hope this episode really helps our listeners get familiarized with what our thought process is and how we loosely follow recommendations or protocols that that are in the literature. I think something interesting that I wanted to touch on real quick is the American Society of Shoulder and Elbow Therapists consensus statement has a lot of good information regarding shoulder rotator cuff rehab, but something that really stuck out in my mind was that those with rotator cuff repair who exhibit poor compliance regarding their post-operative restrictions actually demonstrate 152 times higher risk of non-healing than compliant patients. I think that's something that you can really control and to have your risk of just not healing be amplified that much by poor compliance is, is just not okay. So I think part of it is one, giving them the right education and letting them know what's safe and not safe for them to, to do, because it really is going to improve our chance of, of success. And I think another good study to look at is in JSPT a while back, they had a study that looked at rotator cuff activity with ADLs. And you would be surprised how much rotator cuff activity you actually get with very low level ADLs. I agree. How have you, uh, since reading that uh, consensus statement, changed or even confirmed your ideas on immobilization of uh, someone after they get a rotator cuff repair? Because I I, I know my thinking around it uh, personally changed. Right. I think my perspective changed slightly. What I would say is that I think we need to get those individuals into therapy soon, talking, you know, seven to 10 days after the surgery. And we early on should be the only controlled loading that they experience. And then when they're on their own, they're essentially quote unquote immobilized. But I think us providing the mobilization early on is enough of that controlled dose of exercise and load to help get the the gains that we need and help calm everything down in regards to building load tolerance and decreasing that sensitization processes after the surgery. So I would say it changed it in regards to me telling the patients to pull back on their ADLs and what they're doing outside of therapy, but it didn't really change how I perceive received when they should come into the clinic and what I necessarily do with them early on. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, after reading that, I, I started instead of doing any sort of wall flexion, um, what I started doing was that um, forward bow exercise that they kind of reference in that article. Yeah. Um, where patients just place their hands on a table and just kind of rock their butt back a little bit. And it's a super easy way for them to just kind of control that flexion. And it's essentially completely passive, very, very, very little, little rotator cuff activation. So I agree. I put them on a, a slide board. I put them on the table and I allow the trunk to lead the shoulder motion and the shoulders just coming along for the ride, trying to minimize that rotator cuff activity, that, that shoulder musculature activity, and trying to get that range of motion to be as passive as possible while they perform the exercise. So while we're on the topic of rotator cuff repairs, let's just delve into it a little bit deeper. Those first six weeks are just going to be purely range of motion. And when you're at week six, you can start transitioning to active assisted range of motion to active range of motion. And this is when you wanna keep that MVIC about 29 to 50%. When you start to transition from active assisted range of motion to active range of motion, Something to consider that I haven't seen too many clinicians use that I've started incorporating, especially if you're really trying to be specific with their dose and be a little bit more conservative, is starting off with a short lever active range of motion exercise. So that means if you're going to add active range of motion and shoulder flexion, let's say, starting off with the elbow flex to shorten the lever arm is going to give you a way to start that active movement, but with a little bit less intensity, a little bit less resistance than a long lever with the elbow extended would give you. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that one of the easiest exercises to add in at this point is just a simple short short lever uh, wall slide. Right. And one thing that I thought was important to mention is that stiffness after rotator cuff repair is really not common. 
it's under 10%. So if you have a, sh a shoulder or a patient that isn't getting their motion back and they're starting to get that six to eight weeks, you really got to think about, am I overdosing them? And that's probably what's causing their motion to lag because really these individuals should not demonstrate post-operative stiffness. This is not like a total knee where a decent chunk, you know, end up with really stiff knees. Most rotator cuff repairs should have some good range of motion. Mike, what are your go-to exercises when someone's transitioning? They're in active range of motion. You maybe don't want to add a resistance yet, but you want to start going into some of those strengthening exercises. But what are your, your go-to muscle activation strengthening exercises? What do you add? Yeah, I think part of it is to, um, you know, at, at, at this point, the entire shoulder has gotten weak. Um, so some of the ones that I like to add in, you know, early on, once we start doing some active range of motion stuff, it's just like a sideline external rotation, a prone extension with the arm in external rotation is good. Um, if that causes them a little bit of pain, then I might try it in neutral. I think cueing them into an appropriate scapular retraction with kind of trying to depress that shoulder blade a little bit and kind of call on, on that low trap is going to be really helpful. Another thing I might potentially try is just a simple prone row. Yeah, I agree with a lot of those. I think my my big ones that I jump to kind of match yours, I usually go with prone shoulder extension. I think that for me has been the safest, least pain provoking exercise that as soon as I start that one, that's my number one transition from active assisted range of motion to strengthening, prone shoulder extension, prone row, side-lying external rotation. Those would be the, the main three that I, that I really try to start. Another one that I like to add in just to stress the, the bicep tendon a little bit, and if they're past that short lever flexion, is a supinated shoulder flexion, especially if they have like a bicep tenodesis, something like that. You want to start loading the biceps a little bit more. I do a palm up shoulder flexion activity just to kind of start loading that area. And then once they get to 12 weeks, it gets a little bit easier. You just kind of start progressing your resistance, eventually getting into strengthening the rotator cuff at 90 degrees of abduction really emphasizing the position of the shoulder blade prior to initiation of the actual rotation during the exercise. I think a lot of patients tend to get lost in the rotation aspect and really lose focus and control over their shoulder blade. So really using some tactile facilitation once you start to progress to that overhead phase and making sure that patients really are having that shoulder blade in a medially rotated, retracted position as they go into that external rotation at 90 degrees of abduction is, is going to be important. Yeah. Let's move on from our rotator cuffs and we'll go into our labral repair. I think labral repairs are a little bit more straightforward and easy in regards to you're not going to really mess up any contractile tissue. You can start strengthening a little bit sooner compared to your rotator cuff repair. You do have to take the location of the repair into account. The most common one's going to be your, your bank heart lesion, which is the, the anterior portion of the labrum. It's usually after a shoulder dislocation that the, this part of the labrum is involved. It's a non-contractile tissue. What you really just want to avoid is any aggressive external rotation for a while just because of the arthrokinematics of the shoulder. Yeah, I I agree. Yeah, I, I think you, you brought just a really good point there. It's just, you know, the, the labrum, I think it's just important to know what motions are going to engage different portions of the, the labrum potentially. Um, so, you know, you have a couple different things to kind of think about, right. And where it's, you crank into external rotation, right. You have one, potentially some, you know, kind of stress to the anterior portion of the labrum. Right. And then we discuss range of motion progressions. Uh, usually with the labral repairs, you'll, you can start strengthening, adding one or two pounds at about six weeks. That active range of motion is going to start a little bit sooner, about three to four weeks. Again, there's no contractile tissue involved. So really, regardless of whether it's a shoulder or any other joint, you want to think about, is there a contractile tissue involved? Is there a certain strain on the structure that's going to be involved? And that's going to really dictate your decision-making process. So when you're thinking about a labral repair, as we just discussed, you want to think about what part of the labrum was repaired and how that, that part of the labrum is engaged during different motions. And again, you want to take into consideration the passive motions with this one. And then once you get past that first six weeks and you start strengthening, there's really nothing specific or detailed. You can kind of just use symptom irritability as your guide. Again, you want to try to get that range of motion back by week 10. I think week 10 is a good marker for most surgeries as far as the shoulder goes. If you don't have that motion back by week 10, then you really need to ha be having a discussion with the surgeon even sooner than that, maybe week eight. Again, your throwers, you want to really think about getting more rotation back, especially at 90 degrees of abduction, just because they are going to need more than 90 when they get back into that cocking phase of, of throwing. 
Yeah, I agree. And and that's, you know, a potential kind of thing that might be difficult in those, you know, your bank card lesions and, and, and things like that is, is getting that back. So I think that that's something that you kind of need to be constantly monitoring for, for improvement in that population. And then again, 14 to 16 weeks, I feel like that four month milestone for most surgeries is at least in the shoulders when you can start doing a little bit more light activity as far as light plyometrics, light swimming, things like that. Some more aggressive strengthening at 90 degrees of abduction. That 16 week milestone is a good place to be. Again, if it's a rotator cuff repair, depending where they're at, you may want to be a little bit more conservative just because it is a contractile tissue. Some good things that, that we look at as far as dictating when an individual is ready to return to activity is looking at the ER to IR ratio. This is the strength of the external rotators to the internal rotators. And your internal rotators are much larger muscle groups like your lats, your pec, and then your subscap, which is not a larger muscle group, but you've got the pec and lat helping it out. So your internal rotation strength is always going to be greater than your external rotation strength. But ideally, from what I've, what I've read, they say two-thirds is a good place to be, but even some studies recommend about 75%. So a three to four ER to IR ratio. Mike, what have you read? Would you agree with that statement? Or Yeah, roughly, roughly two-thirds is what I've seen um, for the most part. Uh, there's some stuff that references um, assessing it at different speeds if you have, you know, right. and some sort of way to assess that. But most clinicians don't have an isokinetic dynamometer to assess that. Something that I actually have sitting in my Amazon cart right now um, that I might order this weekend is a crane scale. There's been a little bit of kind of talk about using the crane scale within within kind of the outpatient orthopedic world. And so for those who aren't familiar, all you need is a crane scale and some lashing straps. And you can kind of rig it up where you hook the one side of the lashing strap, either around your foot or around an immovable object. Um, and then the other lashing strap is hooked around the patient's extremity, whichever one you're testing. And the patient is able to put a force into the strap. And with a crane scale, you want to make sure that you get one that is going to hold the highest value. You can give yourself a peak force value there. And that's a, that's a good way to objectify it um, if you're looking for a way to do that. Right, right. And the main thing we want to take out of this particular protocol is that you don't want to excessively stress the repair. So whether it's a posterior capsular stabilization you want to think about what positions are going to put less tension through the capsule, what range of motions are going to engage certain parts of the labrum, and then avoid engaging those particular structures too early and too quickly. Yeah, I think that that's a good point that you bring up um, for those that are, you know, had um, some sort of, you know, capsular shift or, or, or something along those lines. I think, I think with those, it's very important to know who your patient is. If you have a someone who's a thrower right and, and they kind of need those extremes of range of motion obviously you know you want to make sure that that their capsule is stable enough that their arm isn't going to be dislocating frequently but you also might need to be a little bit more aggressive with that person as far as their range of motion goes because they need to get it back the longer it takes to get motion back it might be a little bit tougher um, versus someone who's just your you know lay person that dislocated their shoulder doesn't need to go back to any significant upper extremity sport a little bit of extra stiffness might be okay in that person so that, that's also going to change how you how you handle kind of the, that post-op kind of range of motion progression early on and then one specific surgery that i wanted to look at less to get into the details of, of the rehab protocol but more to help facilitate our clinical reasoning is looking at an anterior ladder j procedure I've actually never had to rehab one, so I'll probably be relying on you for as far as the experience piece for this. I, my, my only experience is just kind of reading up on it a little bit. Right. So basically what they do with this surgery is when they can't repair the labrum or someone's having recurrent dislocations, it's for those individuals that have a stabilization procedure and have labral repair procedure and they just really keep dislocating or for those individuals that have a Hill-Sachs lesion, which is going to be a compression fracture of the glenoid. So with these individuals, what they try to do is they cut out a portion of the coracoid process. It's actually removed with the musculature attached. They split the subscapularis through the middle and they enter the capsule anteriorly to expose the glenoid rim. Then with that portion of the coracoid that they remove, they actually attach it and fix it to the glenoid with the musculature still attached. And this is to provide anterior stability. So once they fix the coracoid, 
to the the anterior portion of the glenoid. It acts as a bony butris to provide anterior stability. And then those muscles that are still attached to the coracoid along with the subscap are going to provide additional stability by acting as a sling. So it's really to prevent recurrent anterior dislocations. Based on what we just talked about with the surgery and what's involved, what are some things that come to mind for you as far as rehab goes? What are some considerations you would take into account based on on what I described there from the actual surgical process? Yeah, um, so I think the big thing is that they actually go in and split the subscap. Um, so that might be something that potentially causes some caution with active and internal internal rotation after the surgery. Also, when they go in and remove some of that coracoid. Yeah, the one thing that I wanted to mention is when they remove the coracoid and they attach it to the glenoid, you're actually waiting for a bony merging to happen. So when it comes to a fracture or any type of osteotomy where they're breaking the bone and then realigning it, you're going to want at least that six to eight weeks for allowing that bone to merge. So thinking about not only are you rehabbing the, the subscap that was split, which does have implications in the protocol for an anterior latter but also thinking about how range of motion, you've got to be a little bit more conservative rather than aggressive just to not disrupt the healing of, of the bony merging of the coracoid to the anterior glenoid. So usually what will end up being the, the progression through this surgery is you can start some light isotonic strengthening, still taking into account range of motion considerations at about six to eight weeks. And those range of motion considerations that you want to think about are you don't want to aggressively go into external rotation. Just because if that subscap is healing, any aggressive external rotation is going to put excessive tension through the tissue. But you do want to try to restore it by about that 10-week mark. And then when it comes to a capsular shift, they're actually going to detach the subscap. They're going to create an incision to see inside the shoulder. And then they're going to pull and tighten the capsule. Where with application, they go in arthroscopically and actually sew the capsule onto itself to create a tightening effect. That would be the difference between a shift and plication for our listeners. What are some considerations that you would have for a capsular shift surgery? And what clinical reasoning would you use to help rehab these patients? Yeah, um, I think, you know, just going back to exactly what we said before, where they are detaching the subscap. Um, So same thing there, caution with subscap activation uh, early on throughout the rehab process. Uh, I think another big thing here is that they are tightening the capsule in order to improve stability. So be cautious with that external rotation early on. Obviously, one, because it's going to stress the anterior portion of the capsule. Um, But two, they've also worked on on the subscap there as well. Right. And I think another thing to mention as well is going to be that ideal dose of range of motion. So you don't want to be too conservative where they don't get enough motion back, but you don't want to be so aggressive where you loosen the capsule too much and undo what the purpose of the surgery was. So thinking about the purpose of this procedure is to provide stability, but you've also got to have that balance between stability and mobility. So those are some important considerations. So Mike, moving on to the hip, I think this is going to be inside your wheelhouse because I know that you did intermittent work with one of the hip specialists when we were interns. So talking about hip arthroscopy and labral repairs, a lot of the, the guidance that I follow is based off an article called Physical Therapy Protocol After Hip Arthroscopy, Clinical Guidelines Supported by Two-Year Outcomes. So anything that we reference in this podcast, or at least that I reference, is going to be based off of this. This is kind of what I use as my loose guide to help guide my patient through post-operative rehab for these procedures. What are some things that you think about early on? What are some recommendations that you have when it comes to hip arthroscopy or labral repairs? Yeah, um, I think number one is uh, the same for any surgery. Make sure that you get the op report. Um, so you want to look at location of the lesion. Was it a anterior? Was it posterior? And then understanding how different range of motion, different exercises long-term are going to put different stresses on the labrum there. So if you're dealing with an anterior labrum, you want to avoid that you know, significantly extended and external, externally rotated position because that's going to put more strain on it. Um, things along those lines. And then also was the psoas affected when they did the surgery? Did they um, need, did they lengthen it because there was some sort of um, snapping hip? Were there any other tissues involved? So sometimes surgeons will just kind of go in and they'll find a few extra things in there that they may or may not have been expecting to see. 
And, you know, whether it be removing a bursa um, or, you know, lengthening a muscle, something along those lines, and just make sure that you that you understand what was done when they were in there, because all of that's going to kind of come into play whenever you start your rehab. That's a good point. I know with some labral reconstructions, if, if the labrum's unrepairable, they'll use either an autograft or an allograft from the gracilis or the hamstring tendon. So if they did have an autograft from a hamstring tendon or gracilis, you do want to think about the implications for those contractile tissues and, and what, what those might be for rehab in regards to progressing your strengthening. Another thing that I wanted to note, Mike, from what you were saying is thinking about what area of the labrum is usually involved. And one thing I wanted to point out is that usually it's going to be the anterior superior portion of the labrum. That's going to be the most commonly involved area. So one thing that I wanted to point out when it comes to the early parts of rehab is you want to avoid any hip flexor irritation in regards to like a tendonitis and also avoiding any contracture. So you don't want to elevate their legs for swelling because you will put the hip flexors in a shortened position for a prolonged period of time, but you do want to use ice to try to go ahead and, and decrease some of that swelling and inflammation. They will be on crutches and a brace for about two weeks. And the purpose of that brace is to limit hip flexion beyond 90 degrees. Again, you don't want to cause too much shortening of the hip flexors, but at the same time, you don't want to engage parts of the labrum that are going to be either impinged at a deeper levels of hip flexion. And same thing, like you were mentioning, you don't want any abduction beyond neutral. Same reason you just don't want to impinge and engage that anterior superior portion of the labrum that's most commonly involved. Same thing goes for extension. You don't want to provide or put any excessive tension through that anterior superior labrum. So you don't want to go beyond neutral extension. So what does that mean for these patients um, whenever they're sitting? I'm sure that, that that's a question that a lot of patients are going to have. How do you tend to address that? Yeah, I think a vehicle or a car is going to probably be the most risky area when it comes to not being able to control what height you sit at. I think pushing that that passenger seat back so that they can actually have those legs extended rather than knees flexed and, and in a hip flex position. Yeah, now you're kind of, kind of trying to drop that, um, you know seat down so almost like the the flat part of the seat is almost declined a little bit some of the cars have kind of that setting and then recline the back and that kind of puts that hip in in an appropriate position that you know we're pretty confident that we're not putting any added stress through that repair right and another component of rehabbing labor repairs or hip arthroscopy is gait training we talked about hip flexor tendonitis and usually what they recommend is about 20 pounds of foot flat weight bearing and the reason for that foot flat is to try to decrease hip flexor activity during the swing phase of the involved extremity. And again, the, the point of that is to just reduce that irritation of the hip flexors early on to prevent any persistent anterior hip pain. Yeah, I think we also talked about how potentially that kind of extended externally rotated position might potentially put some extra strain um, on that anterior portion of the labrum. So their, their gait might be a little bit choppy early on, and that's perfectly fine with these patients. Getting back a fully normal symmetrical gait is not your goal in your first few weeks after surgery. Uh, you're more concerned with just protecting that repair and making sure that you're adhering with those precautions. Right. And then at about four weeks, you can kind of get rid of some of those restrictions. Again, with these patients before that four weeks, you do want to do range of motion. They say that circumduction should be done in those ranges that are allowed early on in post-operative rehab to try to decrease some sensitivity to pain and get some range of motion going before you get out of that phase and can start progressing their range of motion even further. So at four weeks, you can start strengthening. You really want to think about your partial weight-bearing strengthening and then progressing that to full weight-bearing. Before that four weeks, you can do some muscle activity exercise. is going to be some gentle isometrics of the abdominals, the glutes, the quadriceps, trying to get muscles firing, but not necessarily putting individuals in a position where they're going to be stressing that hip joint excessively. Yeah, that's good. And we kind of talked earlier with the shoulder, you know, short level, short lever versus long lever. I imagine that you're in the same boat as me. You're not the biggest fan of that long lever hip flexion. It's just a super long lever arm for where that psoas attaches. Yeah. Um, so, but potentially using some, some short lever arm activation within those early phases. I mean, something as simple as, as a heel slide. For sure. I um, do like but, heel slide as a very low level hip flexion. Typically with those longer levers, you're just going to recruit everything you can to get the job done, particularly TFL. I think the involvement of TFL with different presentations is heavily debated within our clinical practice. I know that Shirley Sarman's research looks a lot at how TFL increases potential anterior femoral glide. 
and how this has implications for putting more stress through the anterior superior portion of the labrum. Again, that's theory. So whether you decide to follow that particular logic or not is really up to the individual clinician just because it's not the most supported evidence, but it's really not disproven either. It's kind of still theory at this phase. But again, I stay away from that long lever hip flexion just because I don't think the benefit is worth the potential risk. And then once they get to 12 weeks, they can kind of start jogging and getting back to some of those more functional movements, some lower level agility. Again, they have to meet some prerequisites as far as full pain-free hip range of motion, a normal gait pattern, good hip strength. I think they qualify it as four out of five or above or a four plus out of five or above. Manual muscle testing is so subjective. So I think really looking at your individual patient and making a decision using clinical judgment is going to be the way to go. And then when deciding return to sport, this article that I mentioned earlier advocates for using the Y balance test and comparing the involved side to the uninvolved side. And what you really want to get is within four to six centimeters of limb to limb comparison with the different reaching directions. In addition to that, you're going to want to do some similar ACL testing, such as your single hop, triple hop, crossover, and then the six meter hop with at least 90% limb symmetry. And then you're going to want to look at movement quality for a squat, double leg and single leg. And then you're going to want to look at movement quality for a depth jump off of a 18 inch box and still looking at that, at that movement quality. So Mike, we're going to transition to the knee now just to talk a little bit about some knee surgeries. Cause I think these are probably the most common that we get other than shoulders, which are fairly common. Minisectomy, I feel like we don't really need to touch on too much. This one is super straightforward. They went in, they took out a portion of the meniscus. This is all about load management. There's really nothing that you can mess up with this surgery. Get quad function back, restore their range of motion, decrease quad lag, restore gait, do all of those things early on, do them right within the first three to four weeks. Patient could be running in as soon as six, as long as you strengthen right and, and get all of these, these goals met as quickly as possible. So I don't think we even need to touch on that one. Let's jump into meniscal repairs. Talk to me a little bit about what are some implications when they do a meniscus repair and what you typically do. Yeah. So most of the time there's going to be some sort of period of protective weight bearing. Some of that research is kind of being debated right now. Or do we need them not non weight bearing at all? Or can we just kind of go weight bearing as, as, as tolerated? I kind of fall into the camp of I'm okay with them doing a little bit of non-weight bearing, just simply from the fact that if you give some certain patients an inch, they're going to try and take a mile. Um, So just making sure that they're not getting too, too aggressive on it early on. I'm okay from that standpoint, but either way, there's probably going to be some sort of period of some sort of restricted weight bearing. Right. So I think like you were saying that protected weight bearing is important consideration. Each surgeon is going to have their own preference. So I am a fan of, of gradual weight bearing. Weight bearing is tolerated. It is tough because as you were saying, you know, you might have that overzealous patient that takes it too far. I don't like the entire six weeks non-weight bearing. I think at least introducing some weight bearing at some point is going to be beneficial for improving the load tolerance of the repair. I agree. Yeah, I think six weeks non-weight bearing is, I think mo- most people will, will agree that that's probably a bit excessive. Another consideration you want to think about is deep knee flexion. Uh, The meniscus are going to move posteriorly as they go into knee flexion. So you will get some impinging effect of the meniscus at deeper levels of knee flexion. Now with a healthy meniscus, this is fine. I don't want anyone to think I'm saying don't go into deep knee flexion or don't deep squat because of this. It's just more with a very sensitive repair early on. You don't want to push deep knee flexion. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, that, and that's going to be pretty consistent among most protocols that you see for a meniscus. Um, even if you don't get one sent by your physician, at, at least that I've seen, um, you're normally going to hold that deep loaded knee flexion for about, you know, 14 to 16 weeks, give or take. Right, right. And then looking at your meniscal root repairs, I mean, the they're going to be the primary anchors of the meniscus at the tibial plateau. The article that I kind of follow is from JOSPT. It, it advocates for non-weight bearing for six weeks in an extension brace for this population. Mike, have you had a specific root repair and what's your experience with that? Uh, I've only had one, actually, um, and I inherited them, honestly, around like six or eight weeks, maybe after surgery, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, But I remember cringing when I saw their exercise program, which included like three or four hamstring isolation exercises that semimembranosis kind of shares fibers with that posterior root of the medial meniscus. Um, So if that was what they repaired, 
then you don't want to put extra strain through that repaired area and risk loosening the attachment of that posterior root to that tibia. And that's the same reason with the uh, weight bearing restriction is that as you walk, you're obviously going to have some hamstring contraction. So trying to limit that and allow that anchor to attach to that tibia before you resume any weight bearing and and risk interfering uh, that interface there. Right. And I think that plays into the non-weight bearing for six weeks in the extension brace. And then when you think about the implications of strengthening, like you said, you cringe when you saw those isolation hamstring exercises. So maybe using the or trying to strengthen the hamstrings and and exercises where they co-contract. So thinking about like a leg press um, without going too deep into it, maybe 40 degrees of of knee flexion is where you want to start. And then eventually progressing to, you know, 70 degrees as you get three, four months into rehab. They say about 16, 17 weeks here as far as getting that squat depth or, or leg press depth to about 70 degrees. And then early on, going more for higher reps for endurance rather than focusing so much on on strength while that meniscal root repair is still maturing. So I think those are some important considerations just when it comes to the root repair. It might be a little bit more specific. And a lot of our listeners may say, well, what's the difference between the, the root repair and just a standard meniscal repair? And we really wanted to highlight some of those differences just to help you at least have some of those ideas in the back of your mind if you encounter one in the clinic. And then as far as getting onto a stationary bike, elliptical, treadmill walking, start doing that at about week 12. The one thing you do want to consider is if, you're, if your patient's a swimmer is you don't want them to wear fins. And the reason is, is that you're increasing the surface area. If the surface area of the object you're using to strengthen in the pool is large, then you're going to get a higher resistance and it's going to cause increased hamstring activation. I think another thing to address with swimming is the uh, potential for flip turns. Um, so most of your swimmers, that's one of their goals to get back to. They're doing either a flip turn or whenever they do their turn, they're aggressively pushing off of that wall, which is essentially a a plyometric jump. So making sure that you're not encouraging them to do that until you've introduced some sort of more rapid loading within your PT sessions. So just doing a a simple stroke might be okay, or even a lot of pool work, right? But make sure that, that you're addressing the fact that you don't want them driving off of that wall early on until you've introduced some stuff in clinic. Right. And then another consideration before we move on is with the stationary bike, you want to avoid progressing any resistance just to avoid any compressive forces at different knee flexion angles and and avoid putting any extra stress through that meniscal root repair. So Mike, moving on to ACLs, I think this is one of those where you feel like there's a lot that you have to remember, but I, I think when you break it down, it's actually very simple. Talk to me a little bit about what you're looking for in those first zero to four weeks most important thing is you want to make sure that you get back extension range of motion early. Flexion tends to come as you go throughout the rehab, but you want to make sure that you get back that extension, ideally within those first two weeks or so. Another thing is you want to make sure that that quad lag gets down. Everyone's kind of familiar with that. And then you want to make sure that their patellar mobility is within normal limits. Just moving that patellar on helps kind of move some of that scar tissue from their, from their surgical incisions around and help pre- prevent any sort of contracture. Uh, and then get the quad firing is another one. Yeah. And I think that's important. I think what you said regarding getting that full knee extension back and decreasing that quad lag, I think those come hand in hand, teaching a good quad set that's not allowing the glutes to substitute with hip extension. Sometimes regardless of ACL surgery or any knee surgery, really, you're going to see individuals, they have significant swelling, significant quad inhibition. They're going to try to create knee extension by executing hip extension. So trying to make sure that they're actually recruiting their quadricep and getting a good quad set, their heel propped is going to help facilitate that knee extension. And then I think as long as you coach them on good load management, good swelling management, restore good normal gait mechanics, all of those things are going to decrease the stress through the knee joint. And then the range of motion will kind of just come. I don't think with, with your ACLs early on, there's a reason to aggressively crank into any specific direction or even to get into like any prone hangs early on or anything like that. I think all, all of those aggressive range of motion techniques are, are not warranted early on in ACL rehab. Would you say you agree with that, Mike? What are your thoughts? I agree 100%. Prone hangs aren't my favorite because if you look at what a prone hang does, it when you're laying on the table, it provides an anterior glide with gravity to the tibia. Not exactly what you want for someone who's post-op ACL. So I tend to just have them long sitting or supine with their heel propped up on, on some sort of prop. 
they're missing extension, I tell them to just, whenever they're watching TV or reading or eating, just kind of prop their leg up like that, have it sit there, maybe work on some quad sets while they're doing it. Have them, I have them do 500 to 1,000 quad sets a day early on just to kind of get things going. Those are kind of the big ones there. Just kind of prop it up and work on that quad set, and that tends to get the extension back. And I think there are some clinicians that are hesitant to open kinetic chain strengthening when it comes to ACLs. But I'm really a big fan of that zero to 10 degree short arc quad, trying to get that terminal knee extension to get the quad firing. And again, you can manually facilitate, help them get into that terminal knee extension, use the other hand to kind of create some stability at the femur so that they're not creating hip flexion as a compensation. And I think that's a great quad activation exercise. Yeah, I agree. Short arcs is one of those ones where you can't really cheat the system. And then as far as strengthening goes, you can add some closed kinetic chain exercises from zero to 60 degrees, a step up, wall sit, some things to get the quad firing, improve uh, willingness to accept weight through that leg. And then your strengthening is limited from 90 degrees to 60 degrees in the open chain. So it's going to be like your knee extension machine once you get to that point. Mike, when do you say you go to 90 to 45? When do you transition from 90 to 60 to 90 to 45? I start to kind of open it up, you know, maybe around like eight weeks or so. I'll probably start to open up maybe a little bit before. I think, you know, if you look at there's a good study in JOSPT. I think Escamila was the lead author on it. And it talks about all of the different uh, ACL strain with all sorts of different exercises. And kind of a general trend was, was that just plain level ground walking is going to put just as much or more strain through the ACL as a lot of our rehab exercises are. So if they're cleared to walk, they're probably going to be okay going 90 to 45 on on that knee extension. So I still maintain that 90 to 60 just from like a biomechanical standpoint, but I'm not as strict or, 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 or scared of going to that 45 a little bit earlier on if a patient if, if i look over and a patient has a, a comfortable weight on their form and they're going 90 to 50 i'm probably not going to lose sleep over it and kind of along those same lines um you know we kind of talked about that closed connect chain step up and wall sits and and, and things like that and i think a, a good thing to do for these patients early on uh is to just encourage them to push through their heel kind of within that same article it references a couple of different studies where patients who squatted or uh, whoever the subjects were within the study, when they squatted, if their heel was planted on the ground, there was no strain through the ACL. So if you just encourage your patients to keep that heel on the ground, it encourages that good hamstring co-contraction to help decrease any sort of extra force through that ACL and allows you to progress your exercises a little bit more so than you might without kind of keeping that in mind. Right. And then once you get to pass that 12 weeks, you're kind of just strengthening at that point, trying to improve quad strength. The article that I actually reference regularly is Adams and Lynn Schneider-Mackler from Delaware, who go on to say that even at 12 weeks, as long as they meet that 80% quad strength, that they can actually return to running at three months, 12 weeks. What's your opinion on it? So me personally, I prefer to hold off a little bit just simply from the fact that they're not going to be getting back to sport for you know nine months we're looking at probably at least until until they go back to sport and most of our criteria for returning to sport are going to be strength power control things along those lines none of that really involves running so if it's something that a patient really 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 wants to get back to, then I would consider introducing it around that 12-week mark, um, as long as they meet the criteria of, you know, knee extension strength. I want, you know, about 85% of the other of the other side. I want the Y balance to be looking pretty good bilaterally. Yeah, so I want them to be decently symmetrical with that anterior reach of that Y balance, because that's the best measure of that eccentric quad control within that within that test. Right. And then you mentioned nine months. That That timeline is based off the Delaware Oslo study which demonstrated that before nine months, if you return to sport, you have a significant increase in re-tearing. So I think that nine months should be a very strict guideline for 99.99% of athletes. I think that's a really good study. It's based on a lot of data. So I think for me, that nine months is, is the minimum I would allow someone to return. And then in that same study, quad strength was the best predictor of a successful return to sport at two years. And I think that's something to, to keep in mind in addition to some of your movement quality testing 
and force production, power production testing, such as your hop testing and looking at the Y balance and even some, some drop landing. Are there any other tests or procedures or examinations that you do, Mike, that we haven't talked about as far as return to sport? I don't think so. I think you kind of referenced that drop landing there at the end. I think breaking that down single leg as they get toward their return to sport might be good. Uh, one thing that you'll see a lot of people work in, I think should probably be worked into that end stage of rehab is potentially working in a little bit of contact um, into their stuff and kind of get them used to in a very controlled environment, taking that little, little bit of contact before they get back out and go to practice. Right. And then moving on from ACL, I just want to touch quickly on a few other considerations for the other ligaments in the knee when they're involved in thinking about superimposing these restrictions onto each other if it is a multiple ligament knee injury. I won't delve too deep into that just because that's a whole different can of worms. But when it comes to multiple ligament knee injuries, you really want to superimpose these different considerations for the different ligaments or whatever tissues are involved onto one another and then make that into a cohesive plan for your patient. And then as far as a stage approach versus a single surgery approach, I think from what I've read, a early single surgery approach has been superior to a staged approach. And for me, that makes more sense just because every time you you go into surgery, that's a trauma. So you don't want to introduce multiple traumas to the same area. So when it comes to MCLs, they really don't reconstruct these too often. It's usually conservative, so they might just do the ACL reconstruction and then see if it heals conservatively. I think only in extreme cases where there's poor valgus stability does the MCL get included. Is that something that you've seen, Mike? Have you ever seen any MCL reconstructions, or has it been pretty conservative on your end? Yeah, I have not treated one MCL reconstruction. I don't think they're very common. I think they usually uh, are pretty conservative, and they usually brace them to prevent any excessive valgus stresses. So if the MCL is involved, it is healing. You want to avoid any valgus stress when rehabbing those. And then going into the PCL, the main thing you want to consider is gravity is going to create a posterior glide of the tibia when you're doing your heel slides or any range of motions. You really want to support that tibia with both hands and make sure that you're not getting any excessive gliding when performing that passive range of motion. And something that you can take into consideration is maybe doing passive range of motion in prone where gravity is now pushing them into an anterior glide rather than a posterior glide. And I think this is a little bit of a more protected position. That's a good thought. All right. And then as far as the open chain exercises with your PCL, it's going to be flipped. Instead of the 90 to 60 protected range for the ACL, you're going to have that 0 to 60 protected range for the PCL. And then as far as your considerations go, you really want to uh, think about getting the range of motion back, getting quad activation back. Again, you want to have a lot of considerations when it comes to your active hamstring strengthening with your PCL rehab, just because that the hamstring contraction as is going to create that posterior glide. So again, hamstrings are going to create posterior glide and you want to avoid any excessive posterior glide early on with your PCL rehab. And then as far as your posterior lateral corner, you're really going to, if you have a posterior lateral corner involved, then more than likely you're, you're going to be dealing with a multiple ligament knee injury. So what you want to think about is the first six weeks, they're probably going to be non-weight bearing and a knee immobilizer. And that's just because during gait, you're going to have ferrous forces occurring through the knee. So during the first four months when rehabbing the posterior lateral corner, you really want to limit that closed chain activity just to limit any varus stress through the knee. Exercises are usually limited to 70 degrees of knee flexion or less. And then you want to avoid any type of tibial external rotation if they're crossing their leg or sitting in a funky position, something you're going to want to educate on. And then once you're 12 weeks into rehab, you can start introducing full body weight squat exercises and you usually discharge their crutches at about week eight. Yep, I agree. All good thoughts. Touch on a little bit about MPFL. Yeah, so something with the MPFL. So the, so the, the MPFL, it you know, obviously is going to resist that lateral translation of that patella. So the people that are going to get these reconstructions tend tend to be your your younger individual, just because they're going to be doing the activities that their patella is going to want to dislocate in more. They're going to be playing sports. So your big things early on is that as you go through progressive ranges of flexion, um, you're going to put a little bit more strain through that MPFL. Um, so most of the time when you see your dislocations are going to occur around that, you know, 25 to 30, to 30 degrees or so in that, a uh, little bit of flexion with that dynamic valgus occurring. And so things to think about are, you don't want to push flexion early, especially as you go into progressive ranges of flexion. 
there's no need to really crank them into into deep ranges of, of flexion as you go through your loading early on. Make sure that that range of motion comes back pain-free before you start to kind of load it with, within those deeper flexion ranges. And I think we'll we'll end it there, Mike, just to recap some things that I thought were valuable from what we talked about today is most of these surgeries, when it comes to range of motion, I don't think any of them really require any aggressive stretching or range of motion to get the motion to come back. I think as their pain goes down, their symptom irritability drops, that range of motion comes along with it. This isn't to say neglect range of motion and just get their pain down. You've got to engage the range of motion. But I think sometimes doing too much, too fast, too early is going to get you in trouble. So I think load management, like we talked about in the last three episodes, really is a key part of that post-operative rehab and trying to really focus on the basics and doing them well before trying to progress too quickly. And then on the other end of that spectrum is if you're really not sure regarding what to do with that patient, you can't get a protocol in your hands, really trying to use clinical reasoning to think about, okay, what do they do during the surgery? And what are the clinical implications for my rehab in regards to are there any contractile tissues that are repaired? Was there any ligamentous reconstruction that you know has implications for the arthrokinematics or, or movement components of the joint? What parts of the connective tissue or labrum are going to be engaged with certain passive ranges of motion so that I can not push those too aggressively? And thinking about those particular parts of, of the rehab is one, going to make you a better physical therapist overall as far as being an independent thinker, but then it's really going to allow you to have higher level discussions with physicians and even one day be able to contribute and design post-operative protocols if, if called upon. I could not agree more. And I, and I think one other um, very important thing is make sure that you are getting op reports from your surgeon. Uh, if you don't know what they did while they were in there doing the surgery, you can't hope to make some of these higher level clinical decisions that we've been that we've been talking about. If all you have on is the script that says meniscus repair, you're not going to know everything that that they did when they were in there, and your decision making is going to suffer. I completely agree, and I think we'll end it there, Mike. I really want to take a moment here to thank all of our friends and anyone that followed our Facebook page as we just went live earlier this week. We really appreciate everyone giving us positive feedback or any feedback at all so that we can really help improve the podcast to improve the experience for our listeners. If you really enjoy our content, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify, whichever mode you you prefer. But that's really going to help us get some momentum and get the word out about the podcast so that we can really reach more people and hopefully continue these constructive dialogues. So again, I just want to say thank you to, to everyone that showed any support this week while we went live and And I hope you guys keep listening and enjoy the content. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. Really appreciate you guys listening in. We hope you have a great day and that you'll join us for the next week's episode.